0: Yeah, I actually have my recommendation before the podcast starts. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Matter of fact, let me, it's like in plastic. Let me take this plastic off so I'm not making a bunch of noise when I pick it up here in a minute. The sound of plastic is makes really good audio, Reed. Yeah. Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussion on digital marketing and digital patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into a variety of topics on digital tools, solutions, strategies, processes, and the impact our industry each and every day. We have to uh, hope to have a lot of fun, share some great information, and uh, have a great conversation. Uh, I'm your host, or one of your hosts, Reed Smith, and always joined by Chris Boyer, my good friend and co-host. You can find Chris online, uh, at Chris Boyer on Twitter, and many of the other social properties out there, as well as LinkedIn and et cetera. You can track him down on his website, ChristopherBoyer.com, and he spends his days and weeks working with hospitals around the country. Chris, how's it going? Pretty good. Hey Reed, nice to be joined
1: by you today. That is my co-host and good friend Reed Smith. He can be found also online using his name, Reed Smith, R-E-E-D Smith. Um, on Twitter, LinkedIn, etc, not to be confused with a law firm that's out there. Um, you can find him also on his website, socialhealthinstitute.com. Reed spends all of his days working with hospitals and health systems across the country too in this space. So Reed, I'm so glad that you're here today for our uh, 18th
0: episode. 18th episode, we can vote.
1: Yes, we are we are of legal age to at least vote, but not drink yet.
0: No, but we can join the service and vote and smoke <laughs> or buy tobacco or whatever. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I'm not smoking today, but um, but uh, I'm, I'm certainly excited. We're, we're nearing our next milestone, which is uh, the big two zero. So I guess um, um, before we get started today on our topic, Reed, I just want to ask our listeners if they could do us a little bit of a favor. You know, um, we're finding a lot of people are, are enjoying this podcast, and we're hoping that you could do us a little favor to kind of get us in the, um, get, help us find new audiences. And there's two ways we want you to do that. First of all, if you find a lot of from this, and there's someone that you're working with or someone that you're related to or someone that you're networking with or just in conversation, uh, please, through word of mouth, let people know to find us online at Touchpoint Podcast or iTunes or um, through touchpointpodcast.com. Uh, secondly, uh, iTunes, if you could just jump out, pop out to iTunes and do us a little favor there where you write us a little review and along the way also subscribe and um and, and give us a rating, that would be really awesome because we find that that's a great way to get the word out.
0: So thanks for doing that. Well today, as you've noticed, since you have since you're listening and you've downloaded this episode, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about, or maybe a lot about mirroring the offline with the online experience. And I, I know uh, you know, if you go back and listen to some of our uh, earlier episodes, the very first one we ever did was on customer journey mapping. Uh, we also did one on voice of the customer. Um, and so we've done a few that you know, kind of touch on this, but really we've spent the majority of our time talking, as you would imagine, uh, about the online part of this equation. And so we wanted to talk a little bit today you know, more around you know, some of the implications and some of the things to maybe to take into consideration uh, as you're planning and executing online, you know, what that really means for the offline world.
1: Yeah. It, you know, in this day and age, Reed, it's not just, you know, online, you can't separate the two. It's everything's integrated. And I think that expectations of people that are interacting with you, whether they're patients or they're doctors and physicians or referring physicians or anyone, um, they have that sort of that expectation that your online experience is going to, in, in effect, mirror or be equate,
0: equate to your offline experience. You know, much like we've mentioned um, previously, where uh, you can't really separate digital marketing from marketing, you can't really uh, expect to, um, I guess, silo the experience. You know, the experience is just the experience, whether it's uh, you know, actual in the surgical suite or on your website. You know, it all weighs into you know someone's brand perception uh, of your organization sure does
1: and and when we were talking about customer journey mapping way back in episode 1 i mean that we, we kind of alluded to that but you know the the, the typical healthcare customer today they 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 intersect with both your offline and your online brand uh, your platforms your touch points, whatever they may be all the time, in many different ways. You know, it could be that they're first researching you, and they find you online, and that helps them make a decision point to choose you as a, you know, as as a health system to seek out care. But oftentimes, it happens all throughout that journey that they're touching um, your online and offline properties at various different iterations, and to them. They want to have that sort of that seamless experience. But I think mapping customer journeys really gives us insight into the fact that we need to embrace this intersection of offline and online.
0: Yeah. And don't you think a lot of this is due to the fact that the expectations have changed? Your online experience used to be um, the hospital probably had a website. And then the expectation became that you did have a website. But it was still basically an online brochure. You know, it was just informational. It was a one-way conversation. You know, now with the introduction of social media, different, you know, patient communities that exist online and things like that, the expectation of how you participate online has changed quite a bit. And that's obviously what we've talked about each and every week. Um, but I think a lot of that now, you start tying the two together because they do Um, I guess one leads into the next, uh, and vice versa. So, you know, the online probably leads into an in-person experience, which potentially leads back into an online experience with patient portals, Mm -hmm. bill pay, you know, et cetera. And the pervasiveness of digital in our lives, you know, it's the lines are starting to blur
1: between offline and online. I mean, you could be sitting in a waiting room and have a digital kiosk to check in, right? And so there's a digital touch point and and to support that on offline experience. Um, but while you're waiting in the waiting room, I've seen some organizations encourage people to go look at the internet, the, even their digital kiosks now are driving them to have a digital experience while they're sitting there waiting. I, I, sure. I, uh, back, to, back to, you know, this whole wait time, I, obviously, we want to Eliminate wait times, but that's one way. Uh, Digital devices—we've
0: talked about that, right? There's
1: all this blurring now of digital, online, and offline.
0: Yeah. So, a couple of examples of that—you just mentioned the, uh, you know, potential of a digital kiosk. There's digital signage within organizations. You've seen a lot of the uh, wait from home campaigns Mm -hmm. and technology that's out there. So, you're participating online. And it's directly influencing your in-person um, experience, which is I don't, you know, I don't want to come up there and sit for hours. I'd rather wait from home. Maybe I've got children, you know, and there's no point, you know, we don't need to be sitting up there with a bunch of other sick folks. Just let me know when I should be there. You know, what are what are some other, you know, kind of blurring of the lines between those? A big one is is virtual care. Obviously, we
1: talk about mobile care and virtual care and being able to like log in through home to talk to a doctor or a nurse, which I think is very convenient. But mm-hmm. I've, I've even some, seen in some organizations, some environments, you're in a uh, maybe an examination room or a room and they pull up a, a doctor. For a specialist, it's doing a virtual consult with you in the actual
0: consult. That virtual care is is another way to kind of break down the barriers of that. What we're really talking about is is your brand, and again, we've mm-hmm. talked about this uh, before. But you know, your brand is more than just logos and colors and fonts and all that kind of good stuff. It's it's what people think about you. It's what 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 they conjure up in their mind. You know, when mm-hmm. someone says your name or your hospital name or location or a physician's name or you know whatever it may be and you know in the in the spirit of mirroring your online and offline presence so to speak uh, we did find uh, an article online called uh, Creating a Seamless Brand Experience Online and Offline. But they had a couple of things at the end of this particular uh, article or blog post that I thought were, were kind of interesting in you know, ways or things to keep in mind for particular categories on creating a seamless brand experience. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the first one, know your various buyer personas.
1: Yeah, the, well, and let's just you know, and in this case, they're talking about buyer personas, but we could just say personas. Know your audiences. No two of your patients are created equal, um, and so you really have to understand. And we've talked about this. Obviously, we had a persona. Uh, podcast about this, but really understanding how people are interacting with you, be it uh, you know what their preferences are online, you know if how many of them are using smartphones, how many of them have access to online and offline ways to find out more about you, understanding your segmentation and your audiences becomes very important for you to help to drive more of a seamless brand experience.
0: You know the second one they've got listed here is uh, assess what's working and what isn't working. Well, you know, luckily, uh, especially in the online space, we have a lot of analytics and a lot of metrics that will show us and, and have the ability to allow us to track, you know, what's working. What, what's the conversion point? When are people dropping out uh, of the process, you know, through certain cost to action and things like that? But again, in the spirit of what we're talking about, what does that look like in person? You know, is a particular uh, clinic or hospital constantly at capacity w- without any of this help. And so mm-hmm. you know the worst thing we can do is is market a bad experience, and we'll come back to that. Uh, but assessing what's working, what isn't working, so you can kind of adjust on the fly. Three, uh, make sure the information is consistent. Oh my gosh, this is a big one, Reed, don't you
1: think? I mean, honestly, a lot of times, you know when you're talking about measuring your your experience in the hospital space, patient experience has a lot of clinical measures. But when we're talking about website experiences or digital experiences, that really is looking at almost like a patient or a patient first or a user first kind of approach. And and th- those measurements are, are inconsistent. One of the things that becomes really eye opening, I would say at an organization is to start to develop that consistent way to track the experience. So, you know, what's it like? Okay, so wait time measurement, that is a patient experience measurement, obviously, right? With sure. measuring your wait time, but also, you know, access, how quickly they can access information online. How do we start to develop consistent data modeling or even a consistent dictionary of how we measure our experiences online and offline is a huge, huge way to start to unite those two, bring those people together. And I think the last one, too, is is really good, right? Talk about about creating brand standards and, and how to stick to them.
0: Yeah. So uh, the last of the four uh, around creating brand standards, you know, really talking to the, to the, the piece where in the digital world, you know, uh, we're quick to update things, uh, which is great. Mm. You want to keep things fresh and new and, and moving. Uh, but you, we've got to make sure that that also meshes with the with the offline I- experience, and so that could be on printed pieces, could be signage, you know, whatever it is. But making sure that um, you know there's a consistency there, and this is you know really an important role of marketing to help you know kind of manage uh, that experience and, and to kind of be the you know the brand owner, also to know when not to change them. You know, I've had some conversations here recently with some organizations uh, that want uh, new branding done. And, you know, I look at what they do, and it's a referral based business almost solely in this particular uh, organization's case. Uh, it's in healthcare, referral based only. Uh, mm-hmm. They've been around forever, uh, have a really good name. And I'm like, you know, I'd be careful monkeying with your logo too much. You've got people that send you patients and recognize you a certain way. Um, let's let's be careful. Let's not go off the reservation here and change colors and a new new mark. You know, and some of those kinds of things because it may cause some confusion. Of is this the same place that I've always sent patients?
1: I was I remember a couple of years ago I was working with a hospital system on redoing their website and they just completed a massive renovation of their most of their their hospitals waiting rooms and that includes color palettes changing out the carpeting i mean a physical transformation right and they were making decisions on the color palette and it was only very late in the game that we realized uh, that we found out that there was a whole different color palette that was going on for this physical transformation that they were having <laughs> we certainly stopped stopped the you know stopped the presses and said hey wait let's take a look at that and at least try to tr- drive away that if you're revamping a website it should feel like it's in the same family as your offline experience. That's a very high level touch. It okay. goes into naming, you know, you when you're out there in the market, you know, making sure that your naming is consistent. But, you know, the, the, a lot of this Really impacts your experience. You don't want to have that dichotomy of oh my gosh, I went to a whole different world when I went to their website or their way, you know, their urgent care or whatever.
0: Right, and you see this a lot. You mentioned urgent care, but other, you know, kind of um, siloed or sandboxed experiences within the organization. A common one is labor and delivery. People coming in for labor and delivery sometimes this is the only interaction they have with the hospital. Now the health system, they may use urgent care and you know some of those types of things, uh, but they the, this is the only time they're coming in. If you're you know women's uh, unit, if you will, uh, mother baby or you know however that's segmented within the organization, they're trying to do things which are which are fine, but you know they're using pink paper and you know they're creating their own logos for childbirth classes or whatever it may be. You need to give them an avenue or a way to accomplish those things, but you've got to still own the brand and. The look and feel
1: we're talking about like visual aspects and logos and names and stuff like that but i mean honestly there's other other aspects to it as well i mean Mm -hmm. obviously i've been involved in a lot of six sigma projects at hospitals where they're trying to improve you know the, the layout of a waiting room or the layout of the urgent or the emergency department or you know trying to improve patient flow and patient access and and all of those things and all of that also is very similar to what you do with a website where you're trying to get people to the right information, trying to get the right content. The whole point here, though, is I think that we're talking about omnichannel. We're talking about cross-channel ways. And now when we, if we start to promote or in our minds promote digital channels as being that important, as important as your website is as important as the lobby of your hospital to impacting the patient experience or the physician profile is in, as important as is how the patient is greeted in your doctor's office. That's really the level that we're trying to get at. And now all of this that we've been talking about, Reed, is very, very high level. There's a lot of examples of organizations that are doing great things around this. As we look at this and some of the things that we've come into in the past, maybe what we could do is we can highlight some of the things that we should consider or avoid when you're starting to go down that path. What do you think?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, one of the things that comes to mind for me is, you know, and we mentioned it earlier, I mentioned it earlier, which is, uh, you know, one of the worst things you can do is market a bad experience. A lot of times in marketing, again, we're operating at a different place in the organization you know, physically. I mean, you know, we're, we're not sitting in a hospital or in an administrative mm-hmm. building or whatever it is. Uh, maybe am in a different town sometimes. And so we're not as connected to what is happening inside the walls of the hospital. And so, you know, side tip here is to spend time in the hospital, walk around the hospital and talk to people. But one of the worst things we can do around marketing about experience is, you know, we spend all our time, you know, trying to drive volume. That's great. But have those mechanisms in place where we can understand, you know, what does that look like locally? You know, a good example is um, we were driving uh, traffic to a new facility as a freestanding emergency center for a client. And it's a new piece of construction in a new part of town. And what we realized because we were we were trying to drive volume there, we were doing some call tracking and, and that kind of thing. And realized pretty quickly that uh, the person answering the phone uh, was not well trained, had no script, and did not know. Because that person was also new, did not know how to tell people how to get there, and people are calling saying, "Where are you located?" And this person can't explain that, and it was causing a lot of confusion, repeat phone calls, etc. So, again, you know, a bad experience that you know if they would have looked that phone number up in the phone book, they would have had the same experience. But here's a way that we. Be, because of digital, we're, we're able to you know, monitor, measure, and improve those processes.
1: That's a really classic example. I mean, how many times have we launched a marketing campaign and at, at the 11th hour said, wait a second, have we told the call center? that we're launching this campaign? Do they understand what we're even promoting? You know, that sort of thing. We're driving all this traffic to make calls, right? And they're not even aware of what might be in the market. That's a really good one. You know, another good one, Reed. that um, uh, it was interesting, and I'll, I'll, I'll explain this through an example as well. In a hospital system I was working at, we were going to change the landing page that you have when you log in through the public Wi-Fi through the hospital. What the intention was is the people that were that were kind of running this, which was the ITIS p- department, right? They were saying, well, what we want to do is we want to make it so that people can, you know, they have to acknowledge and say they accept our rules and regulations, et cetera, et cetera, and then they can log in. And then what we should do is we should drive them to the homepage of our website. Well, our usability people on the digital side said, well, you know, what we really should do is we should look at, what their user needs are and map them to the user needs, et cetera, et cetera. The right situation was we actually took both the facilities people, the ITIS people, the facilities people, as well as our usability people, and we actually said, why don't you go spend an afternoon in a waiting room? and see what people are doing when they're logging in, maybe even doing like a survey to really find out exactly what they're trying to accomplish. And what we realize is the task of people, what most people are doing when they're logging into public Wi-Fi, is you're, they're, they're not looking to go look at about our hospital website. They're looking to do certain things. So what is that screen you know, that we push them to? We created a unique landing page that served the needs of those people. So once they said, yes, I acknowledge the rules and regulations of using your Wi-Fi, we actually 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 drove them right to Google because we didn't know where they wanted to go. They wanted to go check their email, etc. But see, what we did then is we we were so siloed in our own individual approaches. That we thought that we were trying to solve their problem, and ultimately, what we did is we didn't take into account the actual experience. The
0: idea of involving the departments, you know, and all their expectations, you know, is the idea that you know marketing comes up with an idea. Maybe in this case, an app. Maybe it's um, some sort of online call to action form, decision tree, health risk assessment, whatever it is. Uh, which are all good engagement touch points but what is, what's really the operational impact of those can we fulfill the outcome of this call to action some like what we've already talked about a lot of times in marketing we we're, we're, we're really focused on the call to action you know the conversion so to speak but then what you know have we thought all the way through the, you you mentioned the call center earlier you know we thought all the way through operationally, how does this get executed or fulfilled? You know, how do we complete the experience?
1: You know, that, that happens time and again. It's, it's really looking at the larger approach and making sure it all ties together. And I think ultimately what we're talking about here, Reed is patient-centered design or human-centered design? You know, using some of the best practices around that and bringing that into the healthcare space really will help to solve this issue and ultimately help to unify that online and offline brand. There's another article that I, I kind of dug up that I, that that you and I both agreed was pretty good to talk about. You know, bringing some of these principles of human-centered design into healthcare. We all, as humans, as individuals, we have behaviors that are unique to us that actually greatly dramatically impact the way we design things. And design could be the online experience and the offline experience. It could be a variety of things. And in fact the person we're interviewing, David Four, goes into great details. But why don't we talk about five best practices of human centered design that could be
0: very important for us to bring this to healthcare? First one, design. Initially what comes to mind is graphic design, right? I mean, that's where our minds go. But it's more than just making things look pretty, right? What is it? What do you want people to do? What's the outcome? You know, designing the pathway is very different than designing the aesthetic.
1: I often say, you know, people don't come to hospital websites for fun. What they do is they're there to accomplish a task or a goal. And so task-driven design is kind of very important to this. The second piece is leading with real people. This is a very obvious one, and we talked about it in some of our examples before. It boils down to invite people to share their experiences and so that leadership design teams can not only appreciate their experiences, but also can maybe even pivot and learn something new. That's when we get into things like wireframing and sometimes trying out different things and prototyping. Having that check-in with real people to see if if the design is actually working is a great idea.
0: And it's something that we often overlook. Number three, use a well-proven Design process. You know, I'm not going to uh, make assumptions that, you know, most hospitals out there have, you know, somebody that can lead this necessarily or even project managers in a lot of cases, but make sure that you have a process that you know what success looks like. You know, when you've hit the mark, what objectives you're trying to meet and who's going to do what, when, and where. I think the more, you know, solutions, I guess, you know, or or the outcome is what we're working for, but we've got to understand you know, along the way, what does that look like? And how do we know when we've we've met different milestones? The fourth one
1: is bringing your design teams in early at the start of the development process. And, you know, what's interesting about that is, is that oftentimes we tend to go to the designers at the very end. We've already figured out the goals, the strategies. We've talked about, you know, what our audience segments are, etc. And now we're like, okay, now it's time for the design piece of this. And then we bring the designers in. And bringing the designers in as early as possible, because they may bring Questions they may help to shape the development of that process and get information early on so that as they're getting to the point where we actually start to apply the design to the actual product process, whatever it might be, they're going to come with a come, outcome with a, one of the best
0: outcomes there is. I know from my experiences, I uh, you know, I've been bad about pulling designers in at the end, and then <laughs> inevitably every time I'm like, all right, well, hang on, let me let me back up. So, you know, you end up having to. You know, if they're good designers, you have to regurgitate the entire process up to that point. So, you know, it's much more effective. It'll streamline the process, I guess, if you bring them in from the beginning. Plus, it's always, you know, you're going to get better ideas with more people in the room in a lot of cases. So, uh, finally, number five one size does not fit all. You know, and that's probably true about a number of things websites, apps, you know, et cetera. It's hard to just make blanket statements about. This is the way this should be, or you shouldn't do this, or you should do that. Understanding the audience, you know, and going back to journey mapping, uh, personas, you know, many of the things that we've talked about, you know, will help understand, you know, what it is that we're trying to accomplish and for who, and what their motivating factors may be. The author writes about
1: some of the things that we talked about in our persona. Podcast. You can't just segment people out by demographics, gender, or healthcare condition, because within those segments exist a myriad of opinions and differences. Mm-hmm. So he suggests to further segment around preferences, motivations, interests, even health goals. And, you know, we, we talked about that when you're building a good persona. The more we get and the more we understand about all the different ways that people can interact, the better the outcome is going to be. Touch point, touch counterpoint. There are two sides to every story. Ready? Fight! All right, welcome back to our Touchpoint Touch Counterpoint part of the podcast where we and I face off and try to pick a controversial topic and argue the extreme sides of the, of, of the equation. Um, t- since we've been talking today about marrying offline and online... And developing sort of this human centered design approach to uh, to our patient uh, to our patient experience, we thought a good topic might be: Read, uh, should we have digital designers involved in? patient-centered design efforts
0: or, you know, patient experience design efforts. Good grief. No, heavens no. Why would we want to involve designers that have been doing something, um, you know, very specific building websites or, you know, digital assets, getting, we've got enough people weighing in on the patient experience, we, we don't, we don't need more people in the room.
1: But, Reid, I mean, I don't think you're taking into account the fact that good digital designers have a modicum of user experience and user interface design efforts or experience. And that actually brings in some really good practices into how you could start to model and, and map out your offline
0: experience. I mean, should we bring in more clinical folks or people that run service lines? Sure. I don't, I don't know what they would add to the equation at this point in the game. I mean, it's just, you know, they're going to talk a lot about UI, UX as far as online goes, but, you know, I don't know how that helps us with the volunteers that man the front desk.
1: Well, um, I would argue that these usability experts, digital usability experts, Actually, has some good ideas around how to improve the way the systems flow. Maybe improve the way that people would interact. I mean, it's not just it's not just a person at the front desk anymore. There's a person. There's a computer. Maybe it's even positioned the computer a certain way. Some of the design aesthetics that they bring to the table can actually really be a complementary part
0: of the offline experience when you're designing it? I mean, I guess I've never seen it. Uh, You know, I I feel like, again, we have people that are, you know, experience experts. And so if you take that into account and you look at even in the marketing communications world, you know, we have people that are marketing people. We have people that are communications people and they're not necessarily the same. And I'm not sure they should be. And so, you know, we don't have a lot of marketing folks weighing in on communication efforts necessarily, how to write press releases or you know, how to communicate or do sponsorships and things like that. So, you know, pulling in somebody that does, you know, design or, you know, online work, so to speak, into how to lay out a waiting room or how to train people at the front desk and stuff like that. I I just, I can't get there.
1: I think you're focusing on the wrong types of things that they could bring to the table. I mean, certainly you're right. I mean, when they're talking about like how the front end staff can address or, or talk to the talk to people that are coming in. Um, I think that makes a. I think you're right. They shouldn't mention that. But when you're talking about like maybe they have they've done some research about segmentations about the types of people that are there. Maybe they're they 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 could just see how maybe digital can complement that experience. Maybe they 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 can offer ideas about ways that you can you can bring the digital experience to be seamless as part of that experience. What
0: you're talking about is where they can apply their skill set. Yeah, that all sounds amazing. Let's do that online first. Like I mean, we we already have a website that doesn't do any of that. In in a lot of cases, th- there's there's a lot to be done and a lot to um, you know have them weigh in on in the area of expertise they already have versus actually bringing them into the uh, patient experience, you know, on site.
1: Well, but again, as we talked about, right, the experience does transcend between uh, the online and the offline. And so at a certain point, there's going to be that overlap or that intersection between the two. Certainly, I don't think there's, uh, maybe even if they show up as like a silent attendee to some of these early planning events, it would make a lot of sense for them to get that information so that they can optimize that online experience to be more aligned with that offline experience.
0: And okay, Sane, I'm just gonna start repeating myself. If we keep going, yeah, so yeah, yeah. you know, my thought is, is yes. So from a persona-based, you know, development standpoint, and what we're seeing online, you know, if they're good, you know, design folks, they're obviously taking to account measurement and analytics, you know, etc. And so, yeah, they would have a lot uh, to bring to the table. You know, in some cases, it may be more, you know, maybe they're not physically sitting in the meeting. They're providing reports and insights and things like that. Somebody's carrying with them. Maybe in some cases, they're physically in the meetings. Maybe in some cases. They're leading teams, you know, depending on the size of the organization. But I do think there's probably, you know, some valuable insights um, around people that understand interaction, uh, in this case online, on what they could do. You know, in person.
1: And I have to be honest with you that a lot of times digital designers in the hospital setting aren't really that well advanced at usability and experience design. I certainly think that if you do have those people, they can really provide a lot of value. But sometimes it may be a wasted effort to just put a graphic designer there. And I'm not saying, you know, I'm not saying that everybody is, is a bad designer. But, you know, certainly there are opportunities for us to try to align the right people at the right at the table at the right time. All right, welcome back to the Ask the Experts section of our podcast. And today I have a very special guest and his name is David Ford. David, very nice to have you back and talk to you again.
2: Thanks, Chris, I'm glad to be here.
1: So David, um, I know about you and um, I've worked together with you in many different capacities, but um, a lot of our users may wanna know a little bit about you. Tell us who you are, your background, your experience.
2: Sure thing, yeah. Well, I've been doing healthcare design work for about 20 years. I guess that makes me an old-timer, though I feel like I'm young at heart. Um, And I think the best way to think about what I do is uh, is both the delivery side and the marketing side of healthcare. I've I've done a lot of design research uh, on both ends uh, and uh, created a lot of designs uh, on both ends. the research work has been with the National Institutes of Health and the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, um, and I've also done uh, created uh, several products for the likes of General Electric, Johnson & Johnson, Agfa, um, and I've, I've spent a lot of time in big research hospitals and regional hospitals figuring out uh, what they need and then designing solutions.
1: And that's how you and I got to know each other. It was a, a number of years ago. We started working together at, um, a, on a web project when I was working at Northwell Health.
2: Yeah, that was an amazing project because you had an actual digital marketing team with all of the right characters. It was, uh, and I think that that's one of the most exceptional things about that whole project. Uh, we knew that we needed to improve the digital presence for this uh, really big regional health system. But what I found is that you can have budget and you could have vision, but if you don't have
1: staff aligned with those two, then you really aren't going to make it out of the blocks. And that project was really exciting, and it was a bit of a challenge, and we, we did a lot of work together. And in that role, you you certainly helped us with the concept of patient-centered design.
2: And I think that um, the work that we did on the marketing side for Northwell has a lot to say about some, some best practices for doing so. And, you know, I I also want to talk about the clinical side as well, because I think the work that uh, we did together at Northwell really had an an ear to the ground for the clinical side of the, of the business. Um, You know, I think that that's reflected in the the personas that uh, we chose, in fact, to, um, uh, to clarify what we were designing and why we were designing that. We were just as interested in gaining the attention of, let's say, a, uh, a, a family member in the service area and uh, supply her with the information that she needs so that she can make best choices for herself uh, and her family. But also the, the, the doctors and other healthcare providers in this immense system who themselves had to have a positive experience um, you know, with the digital presence uh, that Northwell was providing.
1: That speaks to one of the first things that's always a big challenge when we, when we talk to the people that we talk to is defining patient-centered design. Because you alluded to this. this is is this A lot of times we're coming into it, at least from my background, coming into it from a marketing perspective. But that applies to clinical. That applies to research. That applies to all levels of the, the, uh, the care experience.
2: Yeah. And it, I think it's been valuable— it's been a valuable idea and, and phrase because I, it reminds us uh, for whom we are all um, designing, right? And and what we're dedicated to. It has its limitations, which I'll, I'll talk about in a minute. But for, uh, the opportunities it offers is to make sure that we are not designing for ourselves, you know, as marketers or as designers, we're designing for people whose lives are very different. And in fact, when it's it's healthcare, oftentimes uh, their lives are at a pitch, right when they need digital access the most. There's, there's difficult decisions that they're trying to sort out. And I think that if uh, user-centered or patient-centered design does anything else, it it recognizes the emotional content of any of the interactions that people are going to have whether it be through the internet, on the phone, or in person when they reach the, uh, the medical facility.
1: What is some of the, the work that you're doing around this in, with other hospitals and health systems?
2: I, I think some of the most important things going on right now is uh, taking the, the patient-centered idea and expanding it to include all folks who are involved in healthcare decisions. So, for instance, if, if, if we're only thinking about patients, then we are at risk of uh, forgetting about that uh, person's family and also their, their journey through health. When I uh, work with health systems, I want to make sure that, uh, in particular, in, let's say in pediatric medicine, that uh, so much has to be done in collaboration with parents and has to take into account um, matters at school, for instance. And so if somebody's managing a chronic illness, it's really important for us to recognize that if that's a pediatric patient, they won't be using the website and they may not even want to use an app unless they're already teenagers. And so we may want to reach them, but of course we can't, but we can reach uh, their family members. And on the other side of things that we, we recognize that healthcare providers are busy enough and they aren't getting paid for the most part to interact with people over the internet. Now, of course, that's changing in many ways, but not enough ways. And the big trend I think that we're seeing is uh, to be able to pay healthcare providers to actually interact uh, with people over the Internet, uh, get paid for that, but also get the benefits of digital interactions, which, among other things, helps ensure that you have great records of what it is uh,
1: that you've done. Does ultimate design, as you're describing it, it it makes adoption that much more quicker.
2: You know, we got to understand that we aren't, for the most part, designing something as appealing as BuzzFeed or Netflix. People are using you know digital tools uh, in a healthcare setting mostly because you know, it feels like a little bit like work, right? <laughs> Whether they are on the clinical side and therefore working or even if they're on the patient and family side, that often feels like work. And um, I think that there is a lot of great work being done uh, on the app side, providing better experiences that are uh, more similar to some of the better consumer experiences that we're expecting. But we gotta also understand, uh, of course, that there's a lot of very sensitive information that people are, are creating for themselves and they're sharing. And that does truly trump everything else. And that can be a strain because healthcare is conversation in the end. To the extent that we're sharing information over digital means and it can be transmitted and, uh, and of course, maybe even hijacked, uh, we have to take that quite seriously.
1: So walk us through some of the projects that you've worked, you know, you've, you've done uh, around this patient-centered design and share, share with us some of the, the challenges that you might have faced with these projects.
2: Work that I've done in Cincinnati, I think might be of interest. Uh, the big children's hospital there uh, was a the center of research for uh, creating a clinical collaborative network for chronic care. Uh, the idea is that doctors collaborate on their care to create a better understanding of uh, how their patient populations are doing over time for themselves and In comparison with other practices and that's incredibly powerful and and it really is best done uh, through digital means with some NIH money and some money from other sources Cincinnati has been a center for exploring the opportunities here but that's not just between uh, hospital practices it's also with Uh, the populations, in this case, pediatric populations. So one of the um, interesting stories, we knew that patients needed to be able to use digital health trackers and to be able to share information about how they're doing. The key to it ends up being not just an attractive app uh, for the teenager to use, let's say, uh, or even for their family member to use. Equally important is to create a back end, as it were, for doctors who are Uh, trying to understand uh, how to respond best to their patients. And because the data that we're providing, again, is sensitive, there are some important things to to tend to. One of those is that uh, even though people have chronic conditions that uh, rarely are acute, when they are acute, it could be a matter of life and death. And so from a design perspective, what you need to be able to do is perm- permit a doctor to uh, sort through information to understand, oh, well, here's a trend here and here's a trend there. And, oh, I have to nudge this patient in this way or uh, bring this other patient in, you know, in, in, into clinic in the next couple of weeks because I'm seeing um, a, a difference in their health that I, I, need to, I need to know about.
1: That's incredibly powerful stuff, David.
2: Well, it is. You can then have all of these back-end benefits as well. The, the thing that we also have to bear in mind is that we can be victims of our own success when people really do start to use these applications to achieve better health and better communication. Uh, they can see it as their sole means of communication. And so they could be making an announcement to their doctor that they're in severe trouble. So you have to make sure that the the patient uh, knows to call 911 or to immediately call the office rather than use an app. And also, belts and suspenders, that the app is, uh, also has an instantaneous uh, alert system for the caregivers on the other side when something uh, seems urgent.
1: Right, absolutely, and and that brings into account the, the various different preferences that people have when they're interacting with their technologies or interacting with these systems that we're creating, which I think is a sort of a shorter do- a downfall sometimes of our industry is we, we're very myopic, and when we look at our experience, that you know we anticipate that people are going to follow these care pathways and use the tools that we prescribe to them.
2: Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um, and that's why we always have to have two minds about it, that people may not use it when we think they're using it, hmm. and we don't necessarily know why. And that opens up that whole conversation about uh, the value of quantitative analytics versus the value of qualitative insights. So we can only know so much about people's motivations and, 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 and activities through analytics. Of course, it's it's a matter of course, right? Everybody's putting analytics into everything. But if somebody has stopped using it, it could mean that, eh, you know, they've gone on to something else. But it could mean that they are in a deep depression and
1: they need help. That's interesting. So simultaneously, it provides such a great opportunity to... Develop that engagement, but also great risk at potentially maybe missing the mark. When when organizations start to go down this path, what are some of the things that you would suggest to them? What what can, tips or ideas can you provide them?
2: Well, I, I think what we're looking at here is an interesting uh, hybrid, right? I think that and, and to to recognize it as such, we've had the clinical side since the dawn, you know, of the human race, right? We've had the marketing side really only for the last few decades when we think about it, right? It's only natural that the clinical side ends up trumping the marketing side. But as time has gone on and, ha- and as we've had a lot of consolidation of healthcare businesses, uh, the marketing side uh, becomes more and more critical to the clinical side. And they can wind up, if they're not careful, they can wind up competing in a sort of a zero-sum way for dollars and attention. While that's understandable, um, it also defeats the purpose of uh, treating people holistically. Um, And so the first thing I I say to everybody is to find allies, not just allies within your own, let's say, market research or marketing communications area, that's, (laughs) that's important too, but across to the other buildings where care is being provided first of all, to know what is a drag and what, you know, to uh, our clinical partners, uh, but also uh, to see what our common interests are. Um, I think another thing to say is that, is that we can come up with strategies. Uh, people in the digital realm, were really good at coming up with big ideas. And sometimes they even see the light of day, but that's pretty rare. Mostly we have big ideas, but then we sit down you know, uh, the next day with a cup of coffee and we're faced with you know, tactics. And the people that we're going to be working with in the future when we do our big strategy, if it ever happens, are the same people we're working with right now in the other cubicle. Um, and so that really arguments for experimenting our way into strategy in a humble sense. Uh, and what that means is that uh, don't wait for a strategy to happen. Start experimenting now. Uh, use those, uh, those data streams, both quantitative and qualitative. Always try to understand more about what's going on on the other end. Uh, and then to socialize the data. People are hungry for data. And my experience tells me that the qualitative data, though more rare, uh, is more powerful, provided that it has been validated in some way. And in the healthcare world, that means that that, uh, licensed healthcare providers are looking at that qualitative data. But when you have that, it's incredibly powerful.
1: What you're advocating sounds, at, at, again, like I said, at, at both times, it sounds really exciting, but also a little daunting. And, you know, there's been an argument that we've had, David, um, that we've brought up in this podcast a number of times. In terms of patient experience, what you're talking about, what you're advocating for, sounds like this is the way to develop towards the patient experience.
2: I think that the patient experience is mostly outside the hospital walls, <laughs> Right. Um, and moreover, patients, uh, pe- people don't walk around thinking of themselves as patients unless, of course, they're in an, acu- an acute episode or, or they're just frustrated with the chronic illness. Then they think of themselves as patients, but mostly they think of themselves as human beings, you know, students or or um, or workers or athletes. You know, that's their primary identity. And I think that the best way for us to understand what that experience is like is to uh, understand what their context is and that you're only part of it. But when you are part of it as a healthcare provider or healthcare system, um, then you are all important to them. Um, so there's this really interesting tension. Um, and so what that argues for is, is, uh, is to take the broader picture of their lives so that you don't get too myopic, thinking that it all revolves around you. Um, and we've seen this in content marketing for sure, right? Early days of content marketing is let's create a lot of content. Why? Well, because we need content for the website. Well, that doesn't really translate into value to a lot of people. That's where experience really comes in. Healthcare is a conversation, it's a conversation continually with yourself to the extent that you're mindful. It's a conversation that you're having with your friends and family to the extent that. Uh, that's working for you, and it's a conversation with your care providers. And so that argues more for dynamic content and actual conversations, whether they be uh, real-time or delayed, uh, rather than a focus on content. Or to the extent you're delivering content, understand that that's going to be the touchstone for conversations to come.
1: Wow, that is very inspiring and, and very profound. I love that perspective, and I think that that's very important for a lot of us to hear in this in this industry, because occasionally we do forget that. So, so David, fascinating conversation, as always, whenever I talk to you, it's really fascinating. And uh, if others that are listening in want to learn, know more about you, learn a little bit about you, what's the best way for them to, to find you?
2: The best thing is to... Um learn my name by heart. <laughs> David Fore, F-O-R-E. I'm the only designer out there with that name. Um, my company's called Catabolic
1: Design. Thanks again for taking some time out of your busy day today to have a good conversation with us. I really appreciate that.
2: Well, thanks a lot. And uh, give my, my best to read. I think that what you guys are doing for the healthcare sector is really critical. And I'm, I'm, I'm very pleased to have been uh, part of this this episode.
0: All right, here we are at the end of episode 18, Eighteen, uh, finishing up a really good discussion um, on the online and offline worlds and how they intersect. We'd love your feedback on all the channels uh, that you've connected with us thus far. Uh, not too far in the distant future, uh, actually two weeks away, uh, would be episode 20. And I know we mentioned, you know, that being a milestone earlier uh, in the episode. And so we wanted to throw out an idea and uh, would love your feedback on this and input. But what we are looking at doing is actually creating that episode as a list of 20 tips for digital marketing. (laughs) With that said, we would love to know what those tips should be. And we'd like to feature you. Um, So if you would reach out with your tip or tips... For us through any of the channels, you know, email, Twitter, LinkedIn, and we'll post some notes out there and let people respond in the comments on platforms like LinkedIn. Uh, but we'd love to get your feedback on, on what those tips should be. And you never know, you might get featured in the 20th episode that will have 20 tips for digital marketers. One thing to also ask Reed, if you guys want to record it and be audio yeah, uh, and send it
1: our way, that would be great. We would love to feature your voice and even, you know, maybe send us a brief you know, introduction, who you are, and then say, "Here's my tip."
0: And uh, if you don't know how to do that, just reach out. We can we can help you uh, or give you a quick little tutorial on how to record an audio tip. Uh, but you could surely just do it with the voice memo recorder on your phone and then even just uh, text us, email that audio file. So that'd be awesome. So look for that and uh, be sure to reach out and connect with us around that. In addition, like we do with every episode, we would like to wrap it up with a couple of recommendations.
1: So who wants to go first, Reid, you or me?
0: Go ahead. All right.
1: Well, um, my recommendation is something not digital, but um, something that I found to be really interesting and maybe a good example of human-centered design. The thing is, is I, I work at home and I like to drink water all day long. I... I'm kind of tired of those Nagaline plastic water bottles. And I last year picked up something that I find to be really, really cool. It's called the Swell Water Bottle. About, you know, maybe a half a liter size, that's what I got. But you can get a variety of different sizes, including one the size of a w- wine bottle. It's uh, designed out of uh, metal aluminum. It's a really nice bottle. It has insulation. It's eco-friendly. It's uh, BPA-free. It's insulated so much so that it says it can keep your cold water cold for 24 hours and your hot items hot for 12. Nice. They're pretty cool. And they come in a lot of different designs, too, so you can get one that you know matches your design.
0: So go. we'll put a link in our show notes. Uh, mine is also uh, not something digital. You know, I spend a fair amount of time in my uh, non-healthcare marketing hours doing woodworking, uh, leather stuff. You know, design, painting. You know, etc. So. I like scratch pads, notepads, things like that, that I keep around. I have a little small woodworking shop, uh, where I do some stuff and so leave some stuff out there and it gets dusty and dirty and, and whatever. And and I found a a notepad that I really like, uh, for a number of reasons, but it's made by a company called the Hillman group or Hillman. and, And you can find these probably at your local big box store. Uh, Hillman makes a lot of, uh, hardware for construction and you know hanging pictures on walls and all that kind of good stuff but they have a little notepad it's a three by six kind of reporter style so it flips over the top uh, and it's called WeatherMax, all weather notepad. So like the paper can get wet and you can still write on it with a pencil or a pen. Wow. It also, you know, you're not supposed to be able to tear the pages very easily. So again, it's, it's relatively rugged. I keep one in my car and one out in the shop and stuff like that. And two, it's got these uh, really kind of heavy plastic covers. And so you can, you know, slide it in your back pocket, sit on it, you know, etc. And it's got some cool little uh, little features to it, like on the back edge, the back cover. Um, has a five-inch ruler, I guess, built in or 12 centimeters, mm-hmm. which is a little bit smaller than five inches. And then there's also some kind of quick reference guides. So if you need to know actual dimensions of wood, so if you go by dimension to lumber at Lowe's or somewhere like that, and you get a two by four, it's not actually two inches by four inches. Some people don't know that. And so this gives you kind of a quick reference guide for that. You know, if you want to know, you know, the coverage of a gallon of paint. That is also in here. Or how many cubic feet a bag of... Crete will cover. So, plus I like the grid style paper and that's what's in these. And um, it's the all weather notepad by Hillman. How many cubic feet will a bag of concrete cover? Well, it's good that you asked, Chris. Um, <laughs> it depends if you get the 46 or 80 pound bag. Typically, when you go buy a bag of QuickCrete, it's probably either going to be 40 or 80, depending on you know where you go. But if you go to one of the big box stores... You know, if you're getting a forty-pound bag, you know you're going to end up with about, well, about a third of a foot of coverage, cubic feet. Nice.
1: Yeah. Nice. So, so I guess this is a great way for us to wrap up th- this episode
0: of This Old House by yeah. Reed yeah. Smith. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, and if anybody wants to know, you know, I'm I'm happy to get into you know how many uh, fasteners are required for you know different decking based on your joist spans and stuff like that. So
1: uh, we we seriously should launch a separate podcast with you uh, being that the, the the construction expert and me being the luddite of construction.
0: Yeah,
1: <laughs> oh, that would be fun. Oh, that's- that would be fun. Well, stay tuned for that, guys. But until then, I guess we're getting to the end of our uh, Touchpoint podcast. Yep. I had a really This was a really good conversation. We had a lot of fun. The interview was great. Hopefully some good tips. We'd love to hear what you are doing. If you're uh, you're out there giving us some good examples of marrying your online and offline, we'd love to feature one of your success stories. So feel free to write us on LinkedIn or through yep. Twitter or, or whatever and let us know. He is
0: Chris Boyer. I'm Reed Smith. Have a great week, and we will see you next time. We'll you